Today, we dive into finding your culinary point of view, the importance of multiple income streams, and how you can successfully charge more, next on Making Bacon. Hey there, I'm Jason Logston and this is Making Bacon. We're all about helping you serve your fans, grow your income, and get the most out of your blog. Today's episode is brought to you by my very own self-publishing 101 course. The average home cook owns almost 50 times more printed cookbooks than PDF cookbooks. So why are you limiting yourself? With the advent of print-on-demand companies like Amazon KDP and IngramSpark, it is now easier than ever to become your own publisher. But if you don't know what you're doing, you can waste not only your time, but also your money. After publishing 15 cookbooks, including a top 10 cookbook on Amazon, I know publishing, especially self-publishing, and I want to share my expertise with you. That's where my video course comes in, stepping you through the entire self-publishing process so you can get your printed cookbook up for sale on Amazon without making too many mistakes along the way. You can check that out at makethatbacon.com slash publish now. Now, onto the show. As bloggers, we always hear about how important a niche is, but a niche isn't always a method of cooking or a piece of equipment. It can also be a culinary point of view. But how do you find your culinary point of view? And more importantly, how do you make money from it? Luckily, today's guest is the perfect person to help us out. She is a former chemical and environmental engineer who has spent over a decade in various chef, instructor, and curriculum developer capacities. She has worked with celebrity clients and ran an award-winning cooking school, all after making the decision to follow her passion and pursue culinary entrepreneurship full-time. Currently, she spends the majority of her time as a culinary brand strategist, where she helps her students build solid foundations that develop profitable and sustainable culinary businesses and generate multiple streams of income to scale and expand their culinary business empires. I can't wait to learn from today's guest, culinary brand strategist and CEO of Flavor Enterprises, Chef Evelyn. Chef, welcome to Making Bacon. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here and to talk all things like food business. So this is going to be fun. I saw Chef Evelyn's presentation at, I believe it was a Tastemaker conference. And I was like, I need to get her on the show. She has so much expertise to share with everyone. I think we're all going to get a lot out of this conversation. Absolutely. So I can't wait to dive into monetization. It's one of my favorite topics. But before we get started, I always like to ask, what is it like around your dinner table on a typical day? So for me, you know, it's just me. So my my dinner table varies to various rooms of the house. And, you know, one of the things I like to say is like, there's too much food in the world to eat the same thing over and over again. So, I mean, depending on the day of the week, I'm on some different continent uh, in some different country for dinner. And then I would say, but when I'm really, really lazy, I, I live behind a Chick-fil-A. It's in walking distance and they know me by name. So, you know, you might show up and be like, I thought you were a chef. And it's like, chefs need a break too. So that's kind of what it's like around my dinner table. Have you been exploring any interesting cuisine lately? You know, I mean, I think from the pandemic, I, I did a lot, a lot more cooking than even I usually do. And so I found myself kind of going back to like my childhood favorite. So I don't know if that was like a comfort food thing. So normally I'm like, oh, let's go to India or West Africa or Thai or Brazil. And then it was also like, just like Midwest classics, like meatloaf, spaghetti, <laughs> like it was just like the basics. So that's kind of what I was doing. <laughs> Just nice and comfortable, kind of bring it at home when the entire world is kind of turned on its head. (laughs) Exactly. 
So I'd love to start off by talking about the value of finding a culinary voice. We hear that term a whole lot. What exactly is a culinary voice or culinary point of view? So the way I like to define a culinary point of view is that a culinary point of view is what kind of food you do, who you do it for, and why you do it. And the way I kind of came about that is I was like a semifinalist year many many moons ago on the next food network star and i didn't make it on the show because they couldn't define my culinary point of view and i didn't know how to communicate it so i went on this quest to be like what do they mean but essentially it's your brand story and i think in food sometimes we think we don't need a brand story we think we just need a genre but you do need a brand story so that's how i define a culinary point of view i think one of the key parts of what you just said there too is the the why i think a lot of people are like well i do pressure cooker food for you know people that want fast meals and it's like that is part of it but it's missing that why that can really differentiate you from everyone else how do you explore what that why actually is you know one of the things i like to take my clients through is is going back and thinking about like why did you start cooking in the first place you know, when you're not cooking for your blog or your business, what what do you like to cook? What do you naturally gravitate towards? And what brings you the most excitement? What made you say, you know what, I want to take this from something I do occasionally to either turn it into a really profitable hobby or a full-blown business. And when you start to pay attention, there's usually a through line through your lifetime of the, you know, like something that's common. And usually from there, that's how we get to the why, but it's different for every person. How close does it have to be just like something that like why we got into it? If we're just like, oh, there's this audience that I serve, like how far, like how authentic does it have to be to your own journey versus exploring kind of what your target audience is interested in? I will say this. Do I think people can be successful without a culinary point of view that's related to them? Yes. I mean, I, I think so. I think it becomes a lot easier to create content, to write captions, to tell a story, to know what kind of products to create when it is more authentic to you. So, for example, I had a client who hadn't been to culinary school, right? You know, lots of people haven't gone to culinary school. And when we first started working together, she was like, you know, Evelyn, I don't make anything unique. You know, she was like, I'm a Southern girl. I make comfort food. Like everybody, you know, is making comfort food. But what was unique about her story was that she used to cook in the military. And so she was like, well, I only know how to cook like in massive quantities. Well, then it became her culinary point of view turned into comfort food for large crowds, right? So now her catering company, right? Her classes, her cookbooks are all about comfort food, but for like 150 people or more, right? And that's so specific that people who are looking for, oh, we're having a company picnic with 300 people, but we want comfort food, they go straight to her. So it's not her entire story, but that piece is so significant that it became easy. And now the work that she does is very simple. And so those recipes she's putting out could be, and the type of content she's putting out could be the exact same as someone else, but those, the clients that she wants to work with know that her recipe scales to a hundred, 200 people. Yes. They don't have to worry about it. She's got that expertise. Yes. I love that approach to it of putting those parts of yourself into it to kind of make sure that it's, you know, what makes you special. And then you can apply that to kind of the direction that you're trying to go. Absolutely. 
what if you there's people out there that i talk to a lot that worry that they don't have anything special that they might not have cooked in the military they might not have a unique point of view and i think when you hear someone say that i always think like well you're wrong because i'm sure you have a great story but how do you how do you help them find that or say that in a nice way besides like you know get your chin up like <laughs> I mean, I will say this. I, I'm guilty of being kind of a shake your shoulders kind of person. So I'm always <laughs> like, lies you tell, lies you tell. You do have a unique story because nobody has lived the life that you have lived, right? So it's all about like excavating your experience. You know, I had a client earlier this year and she was like, I just like to entertain, but so many people like to entertain. But I was like, but why do you like to entertain and who do you like to entertain for? Yes, you could be entertaining, but are you doing kids parties? Are you doing parties for people who, you know, just got engaged? Are you doing it for moms who are empty nesters? Right? So when, when those last two pieces change, which is the kind of food that you make, right? We've got that. But when that piece about who you do it for and why you could have the same kind of food and the same kind of why, but a different group or you could have the same kind of food and the same group but the reason could be why or like that that combination can go into affinity so when people think that i don't have a unique story i think is i think they think that it needs to be something you know out of this world or some dramatic story or it could be something so small you know my personal culinary point of view kind of what i mentioned before is there's too much good food in this world to eat the same thing over and over again and that's because as a kid right i wasn't huge on leftovers and so i was the one always being like i want to cook something else i want to cook something else i want to cook something else right and so because my family originally is from the south i was like I want to teach other families, you know, when I was cooking in the kitchen more full time, like that there's more to life than like, you know, Southern food or comfort food. Like there's all these other cuisines. That's not a crazy story, but my story on why I want to do that, the who I'm doing it for and what I'm cooking is, is, is different. And I feel like a lot of people worry about niching down or finding your voice is limiting, but I think in a lot of ways, have you found it to be more expanding than it is limiting? I, I find it to be super expansive because it's kind of like the guardrails, right? But like inside of that, you know, sandbox or that toy box is so many different things. And then what's great about it is it's like a filter that you can run all of your ideas through that. If you do want to do a cookbook, right, you know, then you know what your cookbook's about and you're not like, well, should I do this? Or this is popular or this is trending. If you do want to do cooking classes, you know, now, oh, here's 12 different cooking classes I can do under this theme. You know, if you, if you want to, host an event where you know what kind of food's going to be on the menu. So it, it becomes kind of like the baseline, but I find it extremely expansive. And I think having that clarity, my clients have told me like, it's like a weight lifted off to their, sh off of their shoulders. They now know what to do with all these ideas that have been swirling around in their head. And you talk about like, you know, you can ignore trends when they come out, but like having that culinary point of view, you can also embrace those trends, right? That it yeah. is like, your views, like, I want, I don't want you to have to cook the same food twice. And it's like, Hey, there's a spiralizer or there's an air fryer. Like yes. I can do a book about, or a cooking class about how you can use that to, you know, continue exploring various cuisines. And your audience is like, Oh, great. We've only been talking about pressure cookers, but 
it's, I don't care about the equipment. I care about the culinary point of view and yeah. it transfers so easily to other things. Absolutely. And I mean, I'm pretty sure, you know, and, you, and your listeners are probably very familiar with like, you know, affiliate links and things like that for their blog. Right. So now it becomes easier to interweave, you know, those affiliate links, those products, because it's a part of the story. Like if I love this chef's knife, for example, and it's the only one that I use. And I tell you that, oh, Martin Yan gave it to me when he came and taught in my cooking school. But I used to sit and watch the, him on TV with my grandmother. And it makes me making all these different cuisines so much better because he's teaching Asian, Asian cuisine. The story around that is so more interesting than just this is my favorite knife and it, I can cut things up with it. <laughs> Yeah, it's sharper than the other knives, so you should buy one. Like, it's not a great sales point. <laughs> and I think that's great, that, that culinary point of view. And talking about telling stories, it's like when you know you're speaking to people that share that culinary point of view, they aren't necessarily the people that are coming in from Google search traffic that are like, you know, show me the dang recipe and get out. These are the people that are following you and care about those stories and you know kind of which stories to tell because they are the ones reinforcing your culinary point of view versus like here's my dog like unless you talk about your dog all the time as your culinary point of view which some people do right. you know that doesn't apply but talking about that chef's knife and like why it helped inspire you is like very much of interest to your audience yeah and i find that to your point about like you know the people who want to come and they're just like i don't want to hear your story and just give me the recipe is that's what happens is when you t your brand turns into a commodity, right? Where they're totally not interested, just to give me what I came for. And that's, a, you know, that's a common complaint, right? But if you build that angle, even if people don't share your culinary point of view, but they're just so intrigued by the story, right? Like they just want to follow along. It's like the never ending story. You know, I think about growing up watching soap operas. I know, I like, I don't know what I was doing in high school watching soap operas, but like it was a never ending story. So you always have this open loop, which keeps people around. And so now your, your blog is no longer a commodity, which is like, Hey, just give me the recipes. You can still leverage SEO to get that traffic, but then you get those loyal fans who will purchase your products or services, click on your links because they are invested into you and your story. And you know, one of my favorite examples to use is Ina Garten. Ina is not making anything new. She's not making anything revolutionary. What we love about Ina is her Hamptons lifestyle. She's cooking chicken for her husband every Friday. So we're like, how many more ways can she cook chicken for Jeffrey? I wanna see this week, right? So yes, her recipes are good. We know they're solid, things like that, but we are bought into Ina's story of former caterer living in the Hamptons, entertaining with her friends and cooking for her husband. <laughs> yeah. I love that concept of keeping the loop open and like you do get that SEO traffic and you will have, you know, 95 to 99% of the people probably visiting will not sign up for your newsletter, won't revisit, but like the ones that do, you are standing out and they'll be like, oh, wait, I forget the name. I forget the logo, but I remember the, the conversation about like, you know, the former caterer in the Hamptons, like, oh, this must be the same recipe as the other one. And it starts sticking out and sticking out. And then some percent of those will eventually turn into fans and then you can start making money from them eventually in a way besides ads. Absolutely. <laughs> so speaking of making money and I know a lot of people kind of make money in one direction and then they just stop with that one that one avenue. Why do you feel that finding multiple income streams is such a valuable thing to pursue? 
For a couple of reasons, I will say, you know, a lot of the popular income streams are ones that we don't own, right? And while they can be very, very lucrative and, you know, the, the barrier to entry can be low and easily accessible, which I think is fantastic. I think also, you know, when you, when you're trying to scale, knowing that, okay, I, I, I can only post so many recipes, right? Before I'm, you know, over giving, or, you know, I can only, you know, I can only promote these links so many times, right? Before people are like, oh, okay, we get it. We got your affiliate link, right? <laughs> And so what I found is that, you know, when you're really trying to grow and really make this like a solid business that you need money coming in, in multiple ways, right? You know, I think about how, you know, if you come out of blogging and let's just think about the food service industry and what happened during COVID last year, right? You know, people had very heavily service-based business and didn't have anything to lean on right when the ability to be able to physically work to earn revenue you know was taken away right and so i had experienced that in my own life for a different reason and was so thankful that i had another revenue stream or let's say you know that affiliate company wants to change their percentage or they want to close their affiliate program or they want to change the criteria or you know i think about those of us who do YouTube, right? And they're like, oh, now you need to do X amount of videos and have X amount of watch hours, right? So I can't control that. And so if you don't have multiple streams of income, you're kind of always at the mercy and being pulled in different direction um, by those things. But if you have a couple of income streams that you can control, not negating those other ones because they're still profitable, then I think it just provides a more stable business. I think I agree that it's so much nicer to have, you know, all these other income streams coming in that it's like Amazon cut their affiliate fees by, you know, 80% or whatever a year and a half ago. And it was, it sucked to see my income get, you know, that income go down. But I was like, I still got books. I still got courses. I have these other income streams coming in. And it, like you said, you don't have control over a lot of the stuff and you never know when algorithms are going to change when these companies that don't really care about us are going to make decisions for themselves to that hurt a lot of uh, the smaller content producers out there. Many of my listeners have blogs and some of them are chefs. What are some good kind of next step revenue streams? A lot of them rely on ads or, you know, kind of doing cooking. What What's the next step that they can kind of start to explore? I will say this. I think one of my favorite things to recommend to those who have blogs is to rethink how you position that skill, right? So a lot of times you'll hear someone say, you know, oh, I'm a food blogger or, you know, um, I have this blog. And I would say that you are more of a content producer and that is a skill set that you can sell, right? So for example, let's say I have a blog and I'm really, I take amazing photos. I have great recipes, right? My styling is there, you know, the lighting's right, the props, everything is amazing, right? Well, there's two great skills there. There's recipe development and there's food styling slash photography. What I would do if I was a blogger and I was, you know, maybe my numbers and my, you know, monthly hits or my social media following is not where I want it to be. I would change my perspective and go, 
I'm not going to pitch myself as, hey, put an ad on my site or pay me to post this recipe. I'm going to pitch myself as a service provider and say, hey, I'm a food stylist and a recipe developer and I can create content for your social channels. It's the same skill set. It's the same work, right? But one can charge significantly more than the other. Right. And, 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 and you then use your blog as a running portfolio. So I would lean there first and then have my affiliate links and ads. And then as that grows, pitch myself as a food influencer, right, for them to then put content on your channels. So that's kind of one of the things I love to tell food bloggers is like you've already got these really in demand skills. Just change the way you're selling yourself and you'll make more money. I love that concept of kind of knowing where you want to go and what you enjoy doing. It's something I talk about actually in some of my presentations as well is like, you don't make money as a blogger unless like the food network hires you to write for their site. Like you might make money from ads or affiliates, but you're not making money as an actual blogger. It's just a marketing engine. And if you love doing photography, then set it up as a way to promote your marketing and like if you go to a brand and they say you say like here's some photographs that i do and the amazing work i do they don't come back and say well how big is your website because they don't care they are buying the photographs off of you not the size of your audience yes i I like to tell people that content the full phrase is content marketing right so you have to decide how you want to monetize so you have decided that you're going to market with content but what are you selling? Are you only going to use ads and affiliates? Okay, and you're using content to do that. Or like we just discussed, are you a food photographer, food stylist, recipe developer who is marketing that service with content? So yeah, I, we're, I, we're, we're so in agreement on that. <laughs> Have you found like food photography and styling, like those make a lot of sense, I think, to a lot of food bloggers. Have you found other skills that food bloggers have that are might be more in demand than the average food blogger would kind of expect them to be out there. Well, absolutely. So if you can churn out three recipes a week, you should be pumping out a cookbook at least twice a year. Right. So you, you, what do you need? You you have everything that you need. You have the recipes, you have the culinary point of view. You can take your own photos. You know how to format the recipes. You're a storyteller, right? So that to me makes a cook uh, makes a really good cookbook right and so you're building your audience i mean also if you're really technically competent let's say maybe you did go to culinary school you've got extensive you know experience in a certain area you could be teaching what you know right and when i say that that's two ways you could be teaching the literal part of the food that you're making via in-person or virtual cooking classes or you can be teaching what you know about food styling, food photography, blogging, et cetera, right? So all the skills are there. It's just a matter of a perception uh, transformation. And companies are looking for all those skills as well, which a lot of people forget that, you know, if Bob's Red Mill comes out with a new grain that they're trying to promote, they are probably going to pay someone to come up with recipes for it that's on their blog. And if you love the recipes, but you don't like the SEO and the keyword research and stuff like that, you can lean into that content creation, recipe creation or photography and try to get in touch with some of these brands and work with them, not as a blogger, but as a a business. 
Absolutely. And I think also, let's say you have a blog and you're really good at storytelling, that people really actually enjoy your storytelling. You could almost position yourself as like a culinary copywriter because, you know, when you think about other business and services, particularly, you know, Internet based um, businesses and products, there's copywriters for coaches or copywriters for social media you know, managers, but when it comes to the food space, who's writing copy for us, right? And so if you're really, really good at, you know, telling the story and people actually, you know, are, are bought into your story, you could sell that as a skill set says, hey, I do copywriting for culinary professionals, whether that's bloggers or chefs or things like that. I mean, so there's so much there. It's like, You've already got the skills. Like, I just, this is my favorite thing because I, I look at people and I'm like, but you've already got so many skills. Go make all the money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there is so many skills you need to know as a as a food blogger, and it's hard to be great at all of them. So I love the concept of being like, hey, I am great at writing marketing copy, you know, or recipe copy or recipe instructions, like coming up with recipes. That's all writing, but they're vastly different things. Mm-hmm. And I think... Like you're saying, those stories are key that most of the brands out there aren't saying like, here is our new product and here's like the three reasons why you should use it. It's like people at the beach drink, you know, Corona's like entire advertising campaign is like, you can have a beach anywhere. Like they never mention us. You would have no idea what the beer tastes like from any of their advertising, right? right? And if you can write copy like that, people will hire you. Absolutely. I'm always about, you know, helping people find the area of least resistance. Like what comes to you naturally? And I, you know, it's like, if it comes to you naturally, lean into that. I heard a great quote and I wish I could remember who said it, but they were like, work hard at what comes easy. And that was like a game changer for me. Right. So I I just, if people could accept that, like whatever comes easy to you, somebody is looking for that whether it's a company, whether it's another blogger, right? Let's say you're great at recipe development, but you're like, I just don't want to learn food styling and photography, right? Like, I don't want to buy the equipment. I don't want to take all the classes. I could give my recipe to someone who's like, I don't want to do all the writing and I don't want to do all the business part. I will pay you to take these pictures to put them on my blog. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Two of my friends have that arrangement. Like Lori Rice is a professional photographer. Like she has, she went into food blogging, fell in love with the photography aspects and now sells that as a service to brands. And one of my other friends, she loves writing recipes, but hates the photography. So the two of them work together and like, it's a, you know, monetarily, it's a monetary arrangement, but it's like, they're both doing what they love and they're both getting out of it what they enjoy doing and getting benefit out of it, which is great to see as opposed to just being like, do not want to take another food photo, you know? Exactly. So if someone's listening and they're like, okay, I love doing X. I love writing copy. I love doing food styling. What are kind of the next steps to find someone that is willing to pay you to do that? How do you start moving yourself forward to get some, to start marketing those skills specifically? So, Perfect. It it almost kind of takes us back to the concept of a culinary point of view, right? So let's just say you fell in love with food photography. Okay, awesome. Now, who do you want to do food photography for? Do you want to do food photography for product-based companies? Do you want to do food photography for, you know, major international brands? Do you want to do food photography 
for cookbook authors? Do you want to do food photography for other bloggers? Right. And so I think, you know, whatever you decide on, then you go and you start figuring out what their needs are. Right. So like, I love the example that you just gave about the, the, the two people where one is a blogger. And so, you know, they're like, okay, I'm going to do these photos for people who are bloggers. I may not be pitching to corporations. Right. But if you're like, you know, I'm really, really good at food photography and I want to charge really, really premium prices. And so, you know, I want to work with, you know, magazines and, and that thing. Or if you want to do food styling for, you know, on camera, right, for commercials and things like that versus stills, then you go, okay, let me go and be in that world, right, and interact and engage with the companies and the brands that need that type of product, right? So it, it's it's almost like a new culinary point of view, right? So what are you doing? Whatever your product or service is, who are you doing it for and why? What's their need? What's the problem that you're trying to solve for them, right? So if you think about, you know, the we're in the age of the influencer, the reason why being an influencer, whether you're a culinary influencer, fashion, you name it, right? is so, you know, popular is because companies need advertising content, they need marketing content, and it is extremely expensive to, you know, get a location, a model, a stylist, a photographer, a copywriter, all that kind of stuff, right? So now that we know that, it's like influencer can say, hey, the why is I make amazing content and you don't have to go spend $100,000, you can pay me twenty. And, and we, we have a deal. So it's the same thing. The way someone, now that they have what I like to call an anchor service, would be to get really clear on that's the what, the who, and the why. And then go where they are and hang out with them. I love that concept of go where they are and hang out with them, too. That a lot of people are like, how do I, how would I get in front of brands? How would I do stuff? And it's like... A lot of these brands and companies are in social media. They have Facebook pages. They put out content. If you start engaging with that content in a authentic way, in a you know a non salesy way, right. you will start to build these relationships, right? And find out what they need, and they might start checking out some of your stuff. Or, you know, if you really want to work with a company, put together some marketing copy and be like, "Hey, I saw so and so's ad. You know, I thought this marketing copy might sell it better. What do you all think?" And right. Like, have a poll on Instagram and tag them. They'll be like, "Oh." This is better than the garbage that, you know, our interns putting out. Maybe yeah. we should hire someone. Or pitch them, right? Like, you know, when particularly when it comes to B2B, you know, because now you're a business selling a product or a service to a business, email them and say, hey, this is who I am. This is what I do. This is how I think we could work together. Let me know what you think. That You know, when you get into the B2B side, you know, it's very direct, right? You almost don't even have to create content, right? You can just pitch directly. So, I mean, you know, for years, that's how I sold my virtual cooking classes, right? Yes, I sold some B2C to my audience and that was fun and great, but there was a lot of content creation behind that. And then once I realized that I could just send an email to a company and go, hey, this would be fun for your employees. Want to book a cooking class with 30 people? And they were like, yes. I was like, this is awesome because the email became the content, right? So there's so many, like you said, engaging with them on social, you know, getting your portfolio, which is if you are going to do, let's say, food photography or food styling, your your social media and your website should be like your running blog. I mean, your running portfolio, right? So there's so many different ways. I think if people 
let it be simple, allow it to be easy, it can be a lot easier. I think it's hard sometimes going for that mindset shift, right? Of going like, well, I need 100,000 or 200,000 or 300,000 people a month to to get in front of them to start making a living. It can be if you get in front of the right 10 people a month and you're charging for your services, you can make a living from those 10 people. Yes, absolutely. And and I think that is is my hope for people is that yes, you can still grow a blog that monetizes through sponsorships and ads and content. And I think that's fantastic. But I think as you're growing that, because that takes time, right? As you're growing that, there's a faster path to revenue, which is sell that skill set as a service. I was so caught up in listening, I forgot to think of other questions. The follow-up questions. I was just like, yeah, this is fascinating. I was enjoying it so much. When people get started, a lot of times we do do the things that's easy to us. Like you said, work hard on the things that come easy, but because they come easy to us, I think a lot of times we undervalue how valuable they are. Mm -hmm. What's a good way to start putting a value on these skills and not just be like, well, I mean, I assume everyone can take great food photos because I love it and it's fun. And it's like, they don't realize that half the people out there are going like, that sounds terrifying. I would never want to do it and are willing to pay for it. You know, I think one of the things is understanding that people will pay for quality, speed, and convenience. So, or or a combination of those. And so just because something comes easy to you or naturally to you, or you can do it fairly quickly, doesn't mean you should charge less. As a matter of fact, it, it's the quite the opposite. You should charge more, right? So if I can crank out, you know, food copy and crank out a story and it only takes me an hour versus, you know, it'll take your company or your brand three weeks and 12 meetings to crank out this story. Oh my gosh, I've saved you so much time. I've saved you so much effort. The more, the the, the higher the quality, the faster I can get it to you or, or the easier I can make it for you. That's actually more expensive. So the way I like to, the example I love to use, and I always like to use food examples and non-food examples to illustrate things, but I, I think about, let's just take something we all go to, like restaurants, right? So if I go to a fast food restaurant, well, the quality is not going to be that great, right? But it's going to be pretty fast, but I'm limited to their menu and, um, you know, it, it's just a commodity, right? Like it's, they're just like, you're hungry, let's feed you. If I move up a notch and I go to fast casual, their menu is probably going to be a little bit more expansive. The food is going to be a little bit better. It's less of a convenience, right? But I get to charge more because the quality is a little higher. If I move up to like, you know, a neighborhood, you know, family or chef owned restaurant, okay, the ambiance is there, right? The menu is more interesting. The ingredients might be a little bit better. It's unique. Okay, I'm going to charge more. But now if I flip into... I'm going to hire a personal chef and I get to customize the menu. The price is even more. If it's a private chef and you're exclusive to my family, the price is even more, right? Because now, you know, the convenience and the ease, the, the, the level of customizations and things like that are more specific to you. So if you think about that from a, from your skill set perspective, they could buy stock photo photos. Okay. And, you know, run the chance that 500 other people use that stock photo. Okay. Or they could 
you know, hire somebody full time, right, and pay them an annual salary and benefits and sick days and all that kind of stuff to do that. Or they can hire you as needed, right, and not have to hire 17 other people to get that task done. And so you can charge a premium for that. And even if you're charging a premium, it's still probably going to be more cost beneficial for that company or that brand than to hire all of the moving pieces, right? So when something comes easy to you, it comes quickly to you, that's actually reason to charge more because that means you're now a specialist at that. I love that concept of that. If it comes easy to you and you can do it quickly and with high quality, like that matters so much more. And if you can get something done in an hour that takes someone five hours, you shouldn't charge a fifth as much. You should probably tar charge five times as much because you can give them so much more content. Yes, yes, absolutely. And you're saving them so much time, which is a non-renewable resource, right? So that is the thing is like, if I can give this to you in a week and it normally takes you three weeks, I'm going to charge you a premium because I just saved you hours on your life. <laughs> That's one of the nice things about working with businesses as well, right? Because they looked at this project. They said, if we put in this time and energy, we will get this return on our investment. And if you can speed up that process, it, they're willing to pay for that because it's just going to speed up the return on their investment. So you also talk about a lot about creating like high-end culinary brands instead of just standard brands. And I think that comes with charging a premium like we're talking about. What really sets the two of those apart? So, you know, this is probably one of my favorite things to talk about, particularly if, if someone falls into the category of like more of a service provider, but you can have a high-end brand regardless of what you do. I mean, you can make high-end coolers, lipsticks, hotels, experiences, food blogging, right? You can have a high-end culinary brand. And, and the difference between a standard brand and a high-end culinary brand is the experience, okay? So... You know, one of the examples that I, I love to use when I'm working with my clients is I tell them, think about, I, I'm a makeup fan, right? So this is like my other creative outlet. So ladies, you know, if you're into this, follow this example. You can go into a drugstore and buy lipsticks for five bucks, right? It works great. The color's there. You can go into Sephora and buy a lipstick for 30 bucks, okay? And then you can go to like Harrods of London and buy a lipstick for like 70 bucks, right? Now... How is it that this same thing, a lipstick, is $5 here, $30 here, and $70 over here, and they're all successful, right? So you can have a standard brand and be wildly successful, right? You know, there's Walmart and Target, and then there's, like, specialty stores, okay? So the difference is the experience, and you can build that experience into any product or service that you offer, right? I mean, there's multiple steps involved in that about how to walk through the pipeline of your product or service to, to create that high-end experience. But you go from selling a commodity, right? I'm just selling, okay, my photos, or I'm just posting my recipes, to how do I make that an experience? So I'll give you an example. We're still in makeup. There is a wonderful YouTuber that I love to follow. And the reason why I, I enjoy her videos much more than other people is because she makes the experience of watching her videos a higher level. So for example, every video that she does has timestamps. So you can skip through the video, right? She's consistent. I know her schedule, the quality, 
is there, the camera, the sound, right? She has some things that she says over and over again. So there's some unique things about her brand that are distinctive to her, right? Her description box, make it easy to shop her recommendations, right? So, so her, the experience of watching her channel, right? And how detailed she is in her content. So quality is what I would consider her even a high-end YouTuber, and people may not even think that's the thing, right? So you can have a high-end brand for anything. You know, you can get the dollar cooler from the dollar store, the styrofoam, or you can get a Yeti cooler, right? They both are yeah. gonna keep the food cold, but the experience of having a Yeti is gonna be way different than the experience of having, you know, the styrofoam cooler. Both are equally yeah. successful. My One of my friends that I'm in business with gave me the ISVA for the International Sous Vide Association Yeti Cup. And my wife and I just talk about how it's like magic that we'll go away, you know, go out to dinner and stuff and come back. And there's like still ice and cold water and it's just been on the counter for for like five hours. You're like, we don't understand like the magic of this cup. And it's, yeah, I am a big fan of the, of the Yeti. Yes, <laughs> because your experience in using it is, is way different than any other cup that claims to, right? And it's a cup. So they have figured out how to take a cup and make give you an experience from a cup. <laughs> and I think yep. once people get that and they notice, and here's the thing, everybody likes a high-end something, right? It could be different. Maybe someone's into high-end tech gear, somebody's into high-end hotels, right? Or someone make it, could be into high-end experience, which is like, hey, if I'm going to go to this play or this concert, if I'm not in the suite or if I'm not in the front row, I'm not going, right? Where somebody else could care less. So if you think about why you are drawn to these things that you could go get a regular, you know, thermos or cup that's going to keep yourself cool and ask yourself, but why am I willing to pay more here, right? And then start thinking about how can I put that same feeling or experience in my own brand, regardless of what you do, you're on your path to creating a high-end brand. I like what you said earlier too, about, you know, looking at the, at the process that people use either your service or your products or your blog and saying like, kind of what are these choke points or what are these areas that I can add, you know, convenience to go back to, you know, what you were talking about before speed convenience as being and quality as being like the big kind of factors, like, what is convenience that I can add into my process that will stand me apart? And one of the examples that I always use is like, we went to my wife and I for my birthday a few years ago, went to per se, which was like great meal, like amazing stuff, like Thomas Keller, like amazing time. But what we still talk about is like, when we sat down, they brought like a little stool thing over to put my wife's purse on. Cause yes. you know, heaven forbid the purse went on the ground. That was probably steam cleaned every night. Right. Like that's still stuck out so much that like that to us, that was like the highest service takeaway from, you know, at the thousand dollar dining experience was like, Ooh, the stool was really cool. You know, it was, it was really kind of eye opening for me. Because when you think about something like that, what you remember is like, Oh, you thought about me before I even got here. Like you, you, you spent the time and the energy and the effort to really think about like from how you're going to park to what happens when you enter into the restaurant to that first moment when you sit down. Yes, the quality of the meal is there, right? So, you know, quality needing to be great is a given, but it's all those little things. Her purse had nothing to do with the meal. The meal could have been the most amazing meal on planet earth, right? So quality is a factor, but 
the distinguishing characteristic isn't necessarily always quality. If I use that lipstick, for example, nobody's going to be able to tell on my lips if I've got a $5, a $30, or a $70 lip product, right? But my experience with the brand or the product or the packaging or all of that, right, makes a difference. I tell the story that I did order the $70 lipstick, right, and it was coming internationally and they got my order wrong. And typically when you have to make a return, you know, we've all shopped online, right? You have to package it up and go to either Amazon or UPS or wherever FedEx is sent it back. I got an email, a personal email that says, we're going to send the courier to your door <laughs> to pick up this little bitty lipstick. You don't have to print anything. You don't have to package anything. Just put it back in the box that we gave you. And if you already threw that away, no worries. Just hand it to the courier. We'll, we'll schedule a time so you'll know when they're going to be there. And we'll message you when they're on their way. Like, I was like, for a return? Oh my gosh, I will pay you $70 every time and $30 international shipping, right? For a lipstick. My experience, so now I'm like stuck with expensive lipsticks because I can't go back. <laughs> <laughs> They've ruined them for I'm you. ruined. But it's the same thing, like you said, whether it's a purse or a lipstick or your blog, right? How do you make that experience convenient? You know, you, you really have to get into the mind of your reader or your viewer or your potential clients or customers what what would make that experience more enjoyable for them? And I feel like this is so important, especially as food bloggers, because we do some of that already. Like we look at like, here's the recipe, but if you run into this, if this issue comes up, if you can't find this ingredient, like we are already trying to solve some of those problems along the way. And then if you start talking about services that you're trying to sell, like what are those pain points that you know of that like you know your potential customer has? And if you can you know, in your letter saying, this is why you should hire me because I will solve this problem for you. Suddenly you're a lot more appealing than just like, I'll give you photos. Yeah. You say, I'll give you photos and I'll give you versions in every social for every social media app. They're like, well, I don't even know how to do that. And I hate that part of my job. So right. I'm going to hire this person. Yes. Or let's say you tell them that the deliverable is 14 days and you turn it in at 10 and maybe you bonus them two extra images, right? Or, you know, but you built, here's the, here's, here's the key. It's not about overgiving. You built that all into the cost, right? So mm. best believe when you went to Thomas Keller's restaurant, you know, the built into the cost was the cost of that stool and the cost of the person that was pay, there to, you know, do that. And I think, and that's how you start to justify prices because I think a lot of times when I do talk about high-end culinary brands, people just think, oh, I just need to raise my prices. And it was like, well, yes, but there has to be some changes that justify the increase in those prices. So yeah, think about, and how do you highlight those things, right? Because sometimes, like you said, if, as food bloggers, people are already doing those things, but if you're not highlighting that as a feature, of your blog or of your service, then it'll get lost on people. I think that's great that it's find out what you want to charge and then figure out how you can justify those prices. And that will help kind of inform how much you need to do to make sure you can yes. realistically ask for them. Absolutely. So you have tons of great information online. You have a lot of programs. You have the chef's table experience. Can you talk a little bit 
uh, about the things that you do, because I'm sure anyone that has listened to this episode wants to get a lot more from you because it's just been filled with great information and expertise. So talk a little bit about the great services that you offer. So, yeah, so I would probably say my signature offering at the moment is my chef's table experience where I am teaching people how to build high-end culinary brands from scratch, right? So whether they are, they don't have a brand at all, or they have an existing brand and, you know, they, they don't want to have to continue to justify their prices or people are negotiating their rates or things like that, right? I walk them through about a 13-step process, which has a lot of sub-steps, on how, how to create this premium culinary brand, whether they're caterers, whether they're, you know, okay, I have a client right now who's a nurse who wants to do like food coaching, right? Um, restaurant tours, things like that. So that's mainly what I do. And then I'm working on something, but I can't, I can't, I can't tell you what it is yet. <laughs> what is it? Tell us, tell I us. I can't what tell it? you, but what I can say is nothing like it exists. And so just be on Q3, Q4, 20, like I'm telling you that there's even a thing, so you're getting the exclusive. Q3, Q4 of this year, you'll see it, but it will be something that will really help culinary entrepreneurs lock in that those multiple streams of income. So high-end or otherwise, because you don't necessarily have to have a high-end brand to have multiple streams of income. You know, maybe some people are like, you know, I, I kind of want to be, you know, the Walmart level. Walmart is a multi-billion dollar company. So you can do, you can do that and be successful. But I, I, I love the high end part because I just love sending those invoices and people going, sure. <laughs> and there's no conversation. I, you know, it's a little addictive. What can I say? Yeah. It's nice working with people that uh, can afford your services and are happy to pay it because you provide so much value. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Well, Chef, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your expertise. I had a great time talking to you, and I'm sure everyone listening learned as much as I did. Hopefully, hopefully. And if anyone out there wants more from Chef Evelyn, you can check her out at ChefEvelyn.com, on YouTube and Instagram at Chef Evelyn, and Facebook at Chef Evelyn. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for everyone listening. This has been Making Bacon. We're all about helping you serve your fans, grow your income, and get the most out of your blog. Till next time, I'm Jason Logston.